Well, Damon, it's been six weeks since you were last on F1 Nation. How are you? I'm very well. Where have I been, Tom? I, I mean, six weeks seems to have flown by. I, I can't remember what I've done in six <laughs> weeks. It's getting to that stage of life. Uh, I had my charity karting day. So that was one thing we did, which was brilliant fun. It was uh, raised a lot of money for a good cause. Who turned up to the karting day? Uh, I had my old muckers, uh, Perry McCarthy and, and Johnny Herbert, people I've known for a very long time. We've been very, very good friends over over those years and uh, some great people who turned up to support us the charity is basically for young people with learning disabilities and it's called halo so it's um we do some fun things around that to try and raise some money and um get people out doing things what else have i done i watched i watched a lot of races i've watched quite a few races uh i did go to monaco but i wasn't involved that much although I, i see my name has been mentioned quoted on one of the motorsport um websites so i've said something somewhere which uh, has, has has raised some interest or eyebrows and um, we'll probably get to that in this podcast well hello and welcome everybody to f1 nation with me tom clarkson and damon hill this is our preview to the austrian grand prix and coming up on the pod we're going to talk about the battle for p2 in the drivers and the constructors championships whether ferrari are finally heading in the right direction and we're also going to be joined by mclaren team principal andrea stella to discuss the upgrades that maca are going to be bringing to the austrian grand prix and to silverstone a week later but damon you mentioned you've been watching an awful lot of races what have you made of monaco spain and canada i took the view the Monaco was fantastically exciting to watch. and um, But of course, what I really meant was the qualifying. It is one of those events where the battle is on the Saturday, really. And we saw some astonishingly brave driving and lots of people just rubbing the, the barriers and, and some of them clouding them a bit too heavily. Um, but it was a really f- interesting and exciting, I thought, display of talent and driving skill. Of course, the race is tactical to the point where it's almost impossible to pass but i think the venue is spectacular and i think the venue is is worth every penny i can always just i sit there mesmerized watching the cars go around so you know i enjoy monaco i know it's not full of the deep late breaking things you see on on other circuits but it's the nature of the place and it is still monaco and it's still a marker of the greats you know you can't win monaco unless you've done something pretty special so that was good spain i thought was uh I was not not so bad as we've had in the past. I like the last corner being changed. I hated that twiddly little chicane they put in. It was all wrong for Formula One cars. It's much better that they come hammering down from the last but one corner down that hill. And I can remember doing that myself and and thinking this is this is a corner you can really get your teeth into. And if you get a good exit, you you might get a better slipstream. So again, I thought the power of the the DRS was a little bit too what it was all about you know I, I would like to have seen you know we can remember Senna and Mansell going down that straight wheel to wheel of course without the DRS when you pull out of the slipstream your momentum is checked and so you, you end up with these fantastic situations where both cars are going along together down to the first corner and that was a spectacular memory Formula One memory and that with DRS of course you just go sailing straight past so maybe a little bit of thought needs to go into that and then Canada yeah, Canada, again, threw up some interesting challenges. The podium, of course, was supposed to be, you know, it was celebrated as being some of the greatest drivers we've got of our era all together on one podium. Of course, uh, there was a picture that came out and said, and Hamilton's quote was, these are three best podium places uh, ever in Formula One. And there was Adrian Newey up there as well. So I said, no, four, actually, because, you know, <laughs> to have Adrian up there too, celebrating, what was it, 100th? win for red bull and also i think it's 200th win for adrian was it someone said it was 20 percent of all the races that have been raced in formula one he is an incredible man but hey damon on the subject of that podium it was actually the second time this year that we've had verstappen alonso and hamilton sharing it because of course back in melbourne that was the case as well it got us thinking which characteristics we take from max fernando and lewis to create the ultimate world champion. And can we get your thoughts on this? Okay, because we thought we'd use the same traits used in the F123 console game that's out now. So if we judge those three drivers on the the following four categories, right? For pace, who is your number one? 
out of Alonso, Hamilton and Verstappen? Right now, for pace, I would say Verstappen. I would say, in other words, just sheer one lappery. I think he's got that Senna-esque kind of scary on the edge speed. I know that Lewis has that too, but Lewis is just a tiny bit more proselyte, a little bit more neat and tidy. And, and I don't know, it's just that willingness that, that Max has to go into that danger zone. That's the scary bit. How interesting, because I would still put Hamilton as number one for one lap pace, I think. Uh, he just hasn't had the car. I think we just haven't been able to see it. A younger Hamilton, perhaps. I see that kind of, it's not circumspection or caution. It is just learning that there's a risk reward factor. And I think that Lewis is, he's able to do it. I mean, it's, it's there. You know, honestly, Tom, it's not a big difference, but it is, it is very close. I would say if you put them together against in 10 races, maybe Lewis would come out ahead, whereas Max would probably clout the wall or something in two or three of those events because he'd want to beat Lewis so much that he'd, he'd overdo it. Well, Damon, look, next thing, what about racecraft when you think of those three? Who's your number one? I think it's Lewis. I'm going to disagree with you again. I'm going with Alonso, actually. I think he's an absolute genius at positioning his car. Do you remember the French Grand Prix a couple of years ago when he, he was slowing down intentionally to get the car behind into his dirty air to, to muck up his tyres? I just thought, that man thinks of everything. But Okay, so you're going Lewis, I'm going Alonso. Lewis probably works with his engineers very effectively, whereas Fernando can probably do it without his engineers, where he tells the engineers what to do rather than the other way around. And he manages to fit in a few sort of clever comments in the the process as well, while he's got other things to do. All right, well, what about experience of those three? And just to remind the listeners, Alonso is the most experienced on 363 starts, Hamilton second on... 318 and Verstappen has 171 starts. I take your point about Fernando and racecraft, but I'm just going to go back to Lewis again. I think the thing is with Lewis is that in a race, he's able to produce stunning laps when he needs to. I don't know if Fernando's still got that ability to do that. So if you say to Lewis, we've got, we got a target and this is it, he manages to pull it out somehow. Right. The next one is experience, you're saying. Well, you, you've got to say that Fernando's got the, the greater experience because not only has he done more races, but he's experienced the hard times with uncompetitive cars. And I know that Lewis was at McLaren when they're having rough times, but then very quickly went to a much more competitive situation. But I think that, you know, the difference in teams, having gone through different scenarios and different management and different this, that and the other, that makes him much more complete, I think. I mean, if, if Fernando could easily... It's not inconceivable. You can imagine him running F1, you know. I mean, he's, he knows so much about the, the game. But, um, yeah, definitely sort of someone who would be a big asset to a team, I would think, if he's not racing. At what point in a driver's career does experience start to matter less? I mean, Damon, I've just had a look. You did 115 starts. So you started infinitely less races than Max Verstappen has at the age of 25. And at what point was it no longer a factor? You sort of have it, you felt you had the, the bases covered. I, I followed the Fangio route of a uh, career path of, of Formula One drivers, which was you start in your late 30s or something. And then uh, <laughs> only I gave up before I was 40, went until it was 47. But you think you know enough about it from the outside. But of course, once you get in, you've got that other perspective to learn. And so unfortunately, although I I did have experience by the time I got into F1. I didn't have enough inside knowledge of the sport. And that takes a long time. So, you know, starting in 32, roughly 32 years old, and then finishing when I was 39, you know, it was a very short span for me to to pick up everything I needed to learn. Um, wish I could go back and start again when I was about 20. Well, look, the last thing on F1 2023, when we're judging drivers, is awareness. Who would you put top of that? Awareness is a good one. What does it even mean, awareness? What do you, when you think of drivers and awareness, what does it mean? I think it's the extra capacity they have to take in other things. So they can take on board what other people's lap times are, what the weather's doing, what the track changes, conditions are, whether they need to communicate that to their engineer. You know, and I think that Michael Schumacher was very good at that. George Russell's very good at that as well. You can hear it in his voice. I think Lewis, you know, you hear him on the radio and he's, he seems to be in a state of urgency, which, which I'm, I'm often surprised by. But 
he focuses, I think, 100% on what he's doing and, where, and just going fast and, and getting the most out of the car. Whereas Fernando is able, it seems to me, to be able to think beyond just the, the sheer business of keeping the car on the track. So whether it's Fernando looking at the big screen and seeing his teammate do an overtake in Miami or whether it's Max Verstappen being able to to recognise Helmut Marko's ringtone in Spain, this is all the awareness, the spare capacity that you're talking about. Yeah, but when you're leading a race, you know, when you're that far in front, then, of course, you get distracted. You know, there was a famous stories about um, Jackie racing and, you know, and talking about how he could smell cut grass. You know, someone's mowing their lawn because I can smell the they're cut grass you know but you are in a very heightened state of awareness and there is a thing called flow there is a thing where where they they recognize that when competitors are at their peak there is no effort to what they're doing the information and other information comes to them and they're becoming conscious of very very subtle things so yeah that that you know being able to spot people in the crowd um you know the fangio stories is amazing isn't it where he came down to tobacco and he realized something was wrong because the spectators and it wasn't till days later that he realized that this is the thing that he recognized but unconsciously he recognized something was not right and so he backed off and he came around the corner and there was a car in the middle of the track and for for days he thought that god had spoken to him and, and given some sort of divine sort of clue as to as to what to do until eventually he he worked it out that the faces weren't looking at him so when he was coming down the track something had changed he took on board that there was something subtly different is an emergency panic um <laughs> you know rip cord or whatever you call it you know uh pull the emergency string in the case of emergencies pull the string or whatever they have on trains but um yeah he suddenly went something's not right don't like it i'm going to back off and sure enough, there was something around the corner. So Max has that. I think you're right. You know, he has that, but he he was in a comfortable place. And of course, you have cases where drivers have so much time on their hands that they actually get it wrong. I'm thinking of Senna in Monaco, where he was going faster and faster. And he was told, just, you don't have to go so fast, just back off. So he backed off and hit the wall at Portier. He didn't push. And that made him more vulnerable to making a mistake. So... It's an interesting experience being out the front. You're all alone up the front. And who is our winner then when we look at pace, racecraft, experience and awareness? I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to summarise what you've just said. And I think Max Verstappen comes out ahead more often than not in your book. Is that right? I think if you're going to do this comparing drivers you you have to say okay we haven't seen the full extent of max's career not that i have any doubts about it at all but you know we've seen what what fernando can do over many years nearly decades and you know and lewis as well so when you try and compare drivers like this you you have to say currently where we're at you put your money on max wouldn't you because he seems to have all the ingredients and he's got a bright future ahead of him whereas the, the others are you know, whatever, whichever way you cut it, they're, they're, they're past the middle of their career. You know, they've done the bulk of their work. And so they're slightly different characters or different in a different phase of their, of their development. But yeah, uh, Max, is, Max has got it. Damon, let's now preview the second sprint race of the season. It's round 10 of F1 2023 and we're heading to Austria. Of course, Sergio Perez won the first sprint weekend in Baku. Uh, can he do it again? And a quick reminder from us how the format changes on a sprint weekend. On Friday, we'll have just the one practice session, FP1. And then we go straight into qualifying, which sets the grid for Sunday. Then Saturday is all about sprint, the sprint shootout in the morning, which is different to normal qualifying. You have three shorter qualifying sessions. There's only time for one, maximum two runs in each Q of SQ1 and SQ2 and SQ3. And the drivers have to use the medium tyre for uh, SQ1 and SQ2, and then they switch to a new set of the soft tyres in SQ3. And then the sprint shootout sets the grid for the sprint on Saturday afternoon, which this weekend is 24 laps of the Red Bull ring. And championship points are awarded down to eighth place, eight for the winner, down to one for eighth. And then on Sunday, it's the main event, the 71 lap Austrian Grand Prix points as normal. Now, Damon, my question to you is, does the sprint weekend 
offer a chance to shake up the order this weekend. What do you think? And it's all going to be crammed into this ridiculously tight, short track. I mean, there's not much of it. It's only seven corners, I think. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all over in about a minute, isn't it? So the number of cars getting clear laps and all this stuff is going to be a problem, as we've seen before. So they're all getting a bit tetchy because they're all doing their slow down laps and blocking people inadvertently and getting accused of being unsportsmanlike. So there's going to be a lot of unsporting behaviour, I think, in Austria. Do you think really? No, I, I, I don't oh, mean okay. it. I don't mean it deliberately. I mean, I think, you know, you can't make your car disappear. I mean, these cars are huge. So how do you, you know... Get, and getting out of the way of people just so that they can do the lap. Well, it's- as we saw in Canada, Carlos Sainz, um, you know, was given a grid penalty for impeding and qualifying. Then the race before in Spain, Pierre Gasly had the same. So it is a real issue. You're absolutely right. And on a 64 second lap, which we're going to see in qualifying this weekend, uh, you know, in, in Q1 and SQ1 as well, we're going to see, you know, there's one car every 150 metres or something. So... It is going to be a massive issue. You're right. So, Damon, last time out, Red Bull won their 100th race. Max won his 41st race. It's incredible to think that he's won 41% of all the races Red Bull have won in Formula One. But this is an important race for them. It is their home race. It is the first Austrian Grand Prix since their founder, Dietrich Mateschitz, passed away last October. They're going to want to do well in his memory And of course, Verstappen is now 69 points ahead of Perez in the driver's standings. He's arriving uh, at this race full of confidence. Can you, you know, he's won the last three races from pole position. Can you see anyone beating him? Very simple answer. No, I want to see racing. I want to see a challenge, but all things being equal, I think that Max is going to have this one in the bag. So we are on course for Max potentially winning in Austria and winning everything else that comes along. I don't know, maybe Silverstone could be a little bit more of a challenging circuit. Very, very tough, but we're jumping ahead of ourselves. We're talking about Austria here. And for the moment, I'd say Austria is going to be another max victory. Why is he so good over one lap? Yeah, I think it's confidence. I I think that Christian commented on the fact that he's able to go out and find the limit very, very quickly. And this is the hallmark of all great drivers um, going back to you know Sterling Moss and um, Jim Clark and and Michael Schumacher and Senna, you know they don't they don't take all day to get there. They just go out, find the limit, and then they're they're there already. So they're they're fine tuning. After that, they're just literally just finding tiny bits. So it's it's a kind of ability to compute a lot of stuff unconsciously and automatically. And he's been doing this since he was a kid in in carts. Yeah, but so have they all. They've all been doing it, right, since they were kids. Yeah, but have they have they all pushed themselves to the very limit? Maybe a lot of them will th- think they have, but I, I can tell you now. I can I can I could probably go through the grid now, pick out the drivers who think they're on the limit but haven't even realised what they're capable of yet. And I, I would say there's a good half a grid there of people who I could say they've got more in the in the tank than they've they'd realize whereas someone like max has been admonished for not giving it everything as did anthony hamilton with lewis he told you know he was he stood on the track and got lewis to break as late as possible and you know and really work at getting everything out of yourself and so you know max with max it's automatic it's just flicking a switch off he goes he's at the the max (laughs) no pun intended you know he's literally there on the limit all the time and then it becomes a, a normal thing rather than a peak. You see what I mean? Okay, so how would you assess Sergio Perez's recent performances? Let's look at the last three races. P20 in Monaco. He li- I'm talking qualifying here. P20 in Monaco, because he crashes in Q1. P11 in Spain. P12 in Canada. Do you think Perez is thinking there is an issue with his car? And what chance... Red Bull swapping the cars and putting Max in Checo's car. That, no, no, it's just not going to happen. I mean, for a start, once you get that idea in your head, then you're on a downward psychological spiral because I think that if you've got evidence that something is different, then that's fine. Max said something interesting I was quite surprised by, which is that he said that Checo kept himself doing his own thing. So he's he's actually working on his own setup and his own car and not really looking at what Max is doing and copying them because it is a... 
sometimes taken as a sign of weakness if you have to copy what the other person is doing. But sometimes it may be worth just trying what they've got on their car. But then you have to relearn their setup and you have to relearn how the car behaves. So, you know, I think Checo has lost, he had a bit of bad luck. Monaco was a rush of blood to the head or something. And that's dented his confidence, I think, a lot. So he's now in a state of trepidation, you know, and he is tentative. And at the moment you get in that position, then then you're vulnerable. But if he can't reach out and beat Max, you know, he can get very close to Max. You know, he's capable of getting well within the position to be able to to come second to Max, you know, maybe even occasionally beat him again in, in the rest of the season. But uh, I think he's got it in his head that he's fighting some sort of mysterious deficit perhaps I, I don't know i hope not i hope he'll be back let's let's see austria may be maybe a turning point for him when it comes to checo's qualifying okay he doesn't have the one lap pace of max verstappen but i've been very surprised that he's made as little progress in the races as he has just throw it back to canada last time out starts 12th only finishes sixth and it is possible to overtake in canada there are those long straights and i've been just thinking, why is it that Checo's race pace has been nullified this year? And the only conclusion I've reached is that I remember Andrew Green, who is at the time was the technical director of Racing Point when Checo was there. And he said that Perez has an inbuilt traction control system. He's brilliant at looking after the rear tyres. And back then, the Pirellis were very fast to degrade. And it really helped him during the races. Whereas now, with the low-profile tyres, the tyres are more robust. We've seen that at many races this year. And it's sort of diminished one of Checo's great skills. So that's the only conclusion I can reach as to why he's not making the progress in the races that he, I feel, certainly would have done in the past and is capable of. But it's incredibly frustrating. I know that you, DH, are a big fan of Checo's and it's frustrating to see him in this situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan that I think he's, I, th- I thought he was a better driver than where he had been in Formula One for a number of years. And um, when he got the chance to get a competitive car, he did flourish a bit more, I think, you know, and I'd agree that the ability to get through the pack, you know, would, would Max have stayed there? Would Lewis have stayed there? You know, we tend to think that they would have done a better job getting through traffic. And it may be you've got a point, which is that the durability of the tyre, because it was quite cold in Canada, wasn't it? So you didn't, their problem was tyre temperature, as I understand it, more than tyre heat degradation, thermal degradation. So it may be he was handicapped a little bit. His talent was was not best used uh, there. But you're right. You know, you, you would expect someone to do better with that car if that, that car is so dominant. If you just took the Red Bull results from the last four or five races based on Checo's performance, you wouldn't say that Adrian Newey was a great car designer and Red Bull were a great team. You know, so they, they know that and um, they would be taking steps to do something more to the car rather than the driver. But then you put someone like Max in and suddenly it's better roses. So Checo knows he's got to refine that the stability, but I think he also maybe is suffering from having a dream shattered, which was the idea, however unlikely and outlandish it was, that he could be world champion against Max Verstappen. You know, and I think that that is very demoralising when you've got to accept that the good run of form is not going to is not going to last, and he's managed to lose ground so much so rapidly now on on Max that the chances are that he's. Uh, you know, let's be honest, it's unlikely he's going to catch Max. You know, something really miraculous would have to happen. But then once you come to that acceptance of that, do the best you can with what you've got left and and see where it ends up. You know, he can he can redeem himself. Let's bring it on to the battle between Aston Martin and Mercedes now. Mercedes, of course, bringing a big upgrade to Monaco. And then we saw it really shine in Spain, and then Aston Martin bringing a big upgrade to Canada. Alonso telling us that uh, they haven't completely nailed the setup yet because it was wet on Saturday. Wait until Austria to see what the upgrades can do. So how do we see this battle panning out between Alonso and Hamilton in particular? They had a great ding-dong in Montreal. Do we think that those two guys can genuinely fight Perez for P2 in the championship? Because I actually put that question to Alonso in the press conference in Montreal. Can you beat Checo this year? And he just gave me a one-word answer. Yes. 
and didn't elaborate. What, what, you just gave him an open goal and he just took the penalty and just put it in the back <laughs> of the net. I thought, I mean, yes, I, I, he, he did smack it down the fairway, but I thought he might have put a bit more flesh on the bone and said, well, look, it's going to be close, but I feel like I'm driving as well as ever and the car is getting better and we're nine seconds behind them this race, whereas we were 34 seconds behind in Bahrain, etc. But just Alonso-esque. Yeah, he's, he's, he's yes. more of a Nicky Lauda type um, responder, isn't he? You know, it's one word. Yes? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's not use too many words when one word will do. But how do you see the plight of Aston Martin? Let's start with them. I think that the plight of Aston Martin, I don't think it's a plight. I think it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's incredible. The team they put together is very effective and it's got huge potential. I think beyond Fernando's wildest dreams, really, that, you know, he's relishing it and just, just loving being a racing driver again. So the curve is upwards. Whether they can beat Mercedes, Mercedes are coming from a bit further back, but their acceleration graph is, as I think, a little bit steeper than Aston's. But um, they've made great progress in the last few races, haven't they? But I expect they're working feverishly on next year's car now as well. And a lot of pressure from Alonso. But it seems to me that the formula for creating a, a winning team in Formula One is there. The blueprint is there at Aston Martin because they've taken Dan Fallows as technical director, who is um, Adrian Newey's number two at Red Bull. They've taken Eric Blondin from Mercedes as their head of engineering, effectively. And the combination of those two in particular, I'm told, is devastatingly effective. And we're seeing the results now. And... I'm fascinated to see what Aston Martin can do this weekend at a conventional racetrack like Austria. They haven't got good top speed, have they? But they've got good acceleration or good traction, which you need. But I think the top speed is much better with this upgrade. Okay, all right. Um, I think that's one of the areas they were working on. But equally, okay, what about Mercedes then? You know, it's very tight between Mercedes and Aston Martin in the Constructors' Championship. Just 13 points separating them, Mercedes ahead of Aston. And let's not forget that Lewis Hamilton crashed at this race in qualifying last year. The car was uh, very tricky. Are you going to remind him of that, Tom? Well, yeah, in the press conference. <laughs> yeah, no, but the car, <laughs> the car was um, very, very sensitive through that long left-hander, the, the Bosch curve. And um, it'd be interesting to see what progress they've made with that for this year. The long corner, it's a double apex thing, isn't it? They come down a hill and then you got it. Is that the one you're talking yes, about? Yes, yeah, that's yeah. where he crashed. And, and, it, and what happens is they, um, the first one is the road drops away. So you come, you approach it on a kind of flat ridge and then you turn left and it, the road drops. So the car gets light and wants to understeer off there. And then you get the next one where the car gets buried in this kind of, you know, compression. And it's a little bit like Cascades at Alton Park. Anyone who's raced Alton Park would be able to relate to that. But, you know, it is a uh, very, it's a corner that you put a lot of load into the car. And then if it bottoms, it gets very nasty. That was their problem last year is when they got close to the ground, the car got very twitchy. So that will be a big indicator. I think you're right. You know, if they can get through that corner a lot better than last year, that would be an indicator that they've they've cracked a lot of their their issues from last year. So I'm expecting it to be very close again between Mercedes and Aston Martin. And the outlier is Ferrari. And let's not forget that they won this Grand Prix with Charles Leclerc last year. Charles Leclerc is just monstering up to the back of the race leader. And here comes Charles Leclerc. Verstappen will try and defend the inside line. Leclerc goes to the outside. Verstappen's not going to give this up, you know. This is for the race win, but the switchback and the grip delta, too much for Max Verstappen. And Charles Leclerc leads here in Austria. Oh, what a joke that traction is. Yeah, he was a sitting dunk, wasn't he? He's got no pace, and Verstappen is just being destroyed by the Ferraris today. He's seen Charles Leclerc disappear ahead of him, and now if he looks in his mirrors, he's going to see Carlos Sainz, who's closing up at a rate of knots. Oh, Sainz is slowing. Oh, he's no. got engine problem for Carlos Sainz. Again, the Ferrari engine has let go. Oh, no, from fighting for second, a moment later, he's out of the Grand Prix. No, 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 no. There's your race leader, Charles Leclerc, who's now the lone Ferrari out front. He's ahead of Verstappen by 4.7 seconds. Okay, don't feel the 
Copy, we'll come back to you. That's not the radio message that Ferrari want to hear or what Charles Leclerc wants to feel. And from data, everything is fine on the throttle pedal. Yeah, yeah, it's okay now. It's been a torrid time for Charles Leclerc, but he's put those wrongs right. It's been difficult. He's going to win the Austrian Grand Prix, though, as he rockets out the final corner. It's Charles Leclerc who wins. Max Verstappen pushed him all the way. He finishes second. And that really was a dramatic finale. Yes, sir! Yes! Yes, come on! Oh, my God! I was scared. I was really scared. Yes! Ah, he was pumped, wasn't he, after that one? I remember last year like it was yesterday. But, Damon, do we think Ferrari had turned a corner in Canada last time out? Their, their guys lined up 10th and 11th on the grid. And I have to say, a really good strategy call not to pit during the safety car brought them up to 4th and 5th at the flag. Do you think they can repeat that in Austria? Well, I think they, they they really want to do a lot better than that. I mean, you know, they weren't on the podium, so um, I, I don't see that they've got a lot to be, you know, overly excited about, um, actually. <laughs> but I think... Date- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to be negative there. <laughs> but given the struggles they've had in recent races, let's not forget... That's what they do, Tom, isn't it? It's, what Ferrari does is struggle. That's that's what their um, raison d'etre is, is to, is to struggle bravely to overcome all the odds. But the odds are made by them. You know, they make their own odds. They make their own opposition, it seems to me. But let me give some background, Damon Wright. In, in Spain, Charles Leclerc didn't make it out of Q1 because his car was handling really badly through the left-handers. He had no idea why. The team then took the car back to Maranello after the race and they couldn't find any explanation for it. And when I asked Leclerc about it on the eve of the Canadian Grand Prix, he looked sad, he looked nervous, he looked disappointed. He just said, no, we don't know why that problem was. So I think with that background to come through and for their guys and Leclerc to finish fourth in the Canadian Grand Prix was a decent result for them. For them to make the right strategy call was a decent step forward. They didn't have the tyre degradation in Canada that they've suffered at most races this year. Actually, I think they learnt something at the Pirelli tyre test after the Barcelona Grand Prix. Alongside Mercedes, they were testing the 2024 tyres. But I think Pirelli doesn't tell them anything about the tyres. They they tell them what programme to run, as in, can you go out and do a 10-lap run on this set of tyres, please? But the team is free to make setup changes and any learnings from the previous weekend. And I do think that Ferrari made a breakthrough in that test and that helped them in Canada. And I expect it to help them in Austria this weekend as well. The car is an evolution of last year's car that won the Austrian Grand Prix. So I'm, I, I think Ferrari can challenge for the podium this weekend. I really hope they do anyway. Tom, it won the, won the Austrian Grand Prix. What do you mean? Last year. Last so year. Charles Leclerc. Oh, yeah. But, you know, yeah. yeah, so, okay. Um, um, yeah, so that was a year ago. Uh, lots happened since then. Um, <laughs> well, and true. also, I mean, I go back to the point that Canada was not about thermal degradation, was it? It was actually quite cool. So switching the tyres on, I mean, Max was having trouble switching his tyres on. Well, if you've got a car that eats tyres in the race, which Ferrari tended to have, then, of course, it, it can go in your favour if you have uh, a car that's heating the tyres up better. That is a really good point and very valid. But the, it was the medium tyre that they managed to extend the stint on, which makes me think, yes, if it had been the hard tyre, but it was the medium tyre, which, which I, I still think bodes well. OK, so I, I honestly don't know, Tom. You know, I think that all I've watched with Ferrari is that they seem to be scratching their heads most of the time. And maybe sometimes they get it right, but do they know why? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> and what a defensive drive from Alexander Elben, who gets his best finish of the season and just his second point-scoring result. No! No! Get in there, P7. Yes, guys. The upgrades, all the hard work at the factory to get this ready. This is for all the hard work. Thank you. Well, what about Williams? It was an incredible performance by Alex Albon last time out in Montreal. 
Finishing seventh, his best ever finish for Williams, and he produced a defensive masterclass and drove 58 laps on the hard tyre to keep Esteban Ocon behind him, who was on tyres that were 24 laps younger. It was incredibly impressive, and I actually caught up with Williams team principal James Valls at their base in Grove last week for the next episode of our Beyond the Grid podcast, and he told me why Albon's drive was so impressive. There's no ego. He's a funny chap. But I called him yesterday to explain to him that was a drive of champions, and I've worked with, with a good number of them, and it really was. He didn't put a foot wrong at the point where he's under pressure from four incredibly fast-charging cars behind on tyres that were much better state than his. And actually, some of the work he was doing on repositioning his car on exit of 10 and a few other corners was very clever. And he recognises that. He knows that. He's he's obviously uh, not someone that's going to go and, and boast about it to the world. But for me, that was a driver of champions that he did. Where he sits is this. He, he's definitely bringing the car to the limit of its performance, which is what you're looking for out of a driver. I think he's very underrated, and I'm incredibly happy that's here within our organisation today and here for a long time. Would you consider building the future of this team around Alex? Yes, yeah, I would. He's got leadership qualities to him. There's, there's areas where he and I talk about uh, where I think he can do, do more in certain areas, but he's got what it takes to bring us forward as an organisation. As I said, for certainly the, the future from where I am at the moment, I hope he's very much a part of it. Well, I think it's very flattering and, and um, very supportive and... and it's exactly what you want to hear as a driver that that you're appreciated, and uh, and maybe also what he's saying, James is saying about Alex. There is is actually instilling in Alex a, a more belief than perhaps he has himself in what he's capable of doing. And then building up is what James Vowles is doing at Williams. He's saying all the right things, but he's, it is actually is it was evident as well. So it's not he's not saying something that's not true. So uh, I think everyone appreciated that. Uh, Alex did a sterling job. The whole weekend for Williams was fantastic because they took opportunities. They they raced like rebels. You know, they they know that they haven't got a competitive car, but when there's a little window of opportunity, they think they can do something out of the ordinary. They take the chances they can afford to take. With the guys at the front, everyone would be accusing them of taking ridiculous risks if they did something um, like put slicks on in the wet and stuff like that. So it's good to hear. And they are building up a more effective team and I think also the things that James was saying about Williams in terms of what the factory's got to fight with you know he was talking about the composites department and saying that they were almost 20 years out of date so you know there's a huge amount that can come with investment and the right deployment of funds to make Williams back where they ought to be you know back up the up the sharp end and of course there were upgrades on Albon's car which uh, was shown on the stopwatch. Yes, it was a bold move to put those slick tyres on in Q2 and, of course, get more heat into them. And Alex was fastest in Q2 on Saturday. But I think the team has definitely taken a step forward in terms of performance. And I thought the atmosphere when I was in Grove last week was was really positive. James and I were, were chatting in Frank Williams's old office but one of the changes he's made is he's put a glass wall on one side because he he believes in an open door policy and everyone who's walking past can look in and see him. Whereas Frank, of course, uh, didn't have that. But Damon, it was a really positive experience being at Williams. And uh, I, I believe they can make changes going forward. And actually, it's it's very interesting to hear you make the point about investing in Williams because one of the points he made in the podcast is that the team has not been investing in its infrastructure for the last 20 years. And at the minute, under the budget cap, the teams are only able to spend, I think it's about just over $30 million over four years in infrastructure. And he's saying that Williams will never be competitive if we're only allowed to spend that sum of money CapEx, capital expenditure, needs to be increased. And something very significant has happened this week, which I think is going to help Williams. And that is that Alpine have just announced that some uh, private investment is going to be made into the team to the tune of 200 million euros in exchange for a 24% stake in the team. And one of the investors, it should be noted, Mr. Hill, 
is Maximum Effort Investors. And that is led by Hollywood superstar Ryan Reynolds. Think Deadpool and a whole bunch of other movies that he's been in. In the UK, more recently, he's been involved with Wrexham Football Club. So it's going to be fascinating to see what Ryan does with Alpine, and uh, which is significant for two reasons. One is that that values Alpine at just over 900 million euros. Now, when you think back to a couple of years ago, when Claire Williams sold the Williams team, all I will tell you is that it was for significantly less than that. So um, what an ecosystem Liberty and Formula One have created. The value of these teams has just gone up so dramatically in the last two years. That's what one of the things that this investment from Otro Capital proves. But also, now that Alpine have this 200 million to spend, I think they're going to be batting on the same side as James Val saying, we need to upgrade our facilities in Enstone. We need to increase the capital expenditure and there only need to be five teams in agreement for that to happen so that is actually quite significant a for alpine of course but also for williams and the and the increase in capital expenditure which which all comes back tom to the strategy that formula one has had and it was outlined in your conversation with stefano domenicali again in your uh, alternative podcast um which um was about leveling the playing field in attempt to make the racing more exciting but the problem being that you can have 200 million pounds but you can't spend it you know 200 million dollars or whatever it is you know you can't now the deployment of those funds if you actually have them are limited so that's you're saying that's the challenge that's a political debate now that will happen with f1 um regarding the cost cap is that what you're saying yes and it's fascinating so so the likes of aston martin for example have just moved into their new factory at Silverstone, they managed to get all that through, all the payment side of it through, before the cost cap came in. Red Bull have spent literally hundreds of millions of dollars over the last 20 years building up their infrastructure. Mercedes the same. And so for the guys at the front, they're quite, yeah, you guys just stay where you are. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah we're quite happy with the 30 odd million over, over four years. That's enough for us. So it's, you know, it's Formula One's a political game, isn't it? But um, James Vowles is, is, is very strong on this topic in that Beyond the Grid podcast, which you can hear from Wednesday. Let's now move on to McLaren. They're bringing upgrades to Austria this weekend and then at Silverstone as well the following weekend in their efforts to reduce the 27-point gap to Alpine in the Constructors' Championship. Amazingly, they haven't scored points in the last two races, partly down to some bad luck for Lando Norris. Remember uh, his contact with Lewis Hamilton on the first lap in Barcelona. That might have cost him points although he will tell you that the car was very uncompetitive in race conditions there. And then he was then hit with this five-second penalty for unsportsmanlike behaviour in Canada after slowing down behind teammate Oscar Piastri during the safety car period to try and get a gap so that the team could double-stack both of their drivers. Now, that cost him P9. And I've been speaking to team principal Andrea Stella, who told me what the mood is like in the team at the moment. The mood at McLaren is um, definitely high, and I would say it's not only about the mood, which could be something that fluctuates over the short term. I think what is high at the moment at McLaren is the level of energy and the level of um, awareness in the potential that we are building in the team. Looking back at the last two races, clearly the positives is that we saw some indications that the car can be quick even though in some uh, specific conditions like cold conditions mixed between inters and dry or intermediate tires, uh, still we managed to achieve a P3 in qualifying in Spain, P7 and P9, which could have been even better without the red flag in Canada. And uh, also in Canada, for instance, during the race, we saw some spells of uh, quick pace, uh, likewise, even before in Monaco. So I think there's this positive trend from an uh, um, indication of um, the speed of the car. At the same time, we have also confirmed that we do have to improve in terms of uh, race pace, consistency, which is fundamentally the way your car uses the tires 
and we need to keep the tires in a better condition over consecutive laps. So this is definitely one of the priorities at the moment at McLaren. Well, this brings us beautifully on to talking about Austria and in a way Silverstone, because you have an upgrade package that you're introducing this weekend. What can you tell us about it? And where do you expect the upgrade to improve performance? Is it the consistency that you've just mentioned? We do have um, a few interesting races ahead of us because um, let's say that very early on in the season we realized that the car needed a substantial redesign. So we started this uh, big effort of redesigning which is in uh, aerodynamics but also in terms of some uh, mechanical parts. So we are finally ready now to land these uh, upgrades of the car uh, track side. This will start in Austria and will uh, uh, continue for uh, a few races as parts become uh, available. Uh, so definitely the aerodynamic performance is the main uh, area that we targeted and this will be reflected in terms of more downforce and possibly less drag. So this is normally just genuine uh, and immediate lap time. It does require, though, that you have good correlation between the development tools where you have developed these improvements and that's where you create uh, your expectations. But then, obviously, this requires that this correlation uh, means that this performance materializes on track. So we'll have to wait in practice session uh, if that's the case, and it should bring a few tenths of lap time. And in the meantime, like I said, we are working on uh, improving solutions to improve the way we interact, the car interacts with the tires. Uh, and this will come uh, over the next races as well. How much of an overhaul is this package? I mean, is it right that all the main aero pieces on the MCL 60 have been changed since the launch spec car? So I think we need to distinguish since the launch spec to now, there hasn't been actually much of an upgrade that has landed onto the MCL60. The major one has been uh, a new floor that we took to Baku and which was, if anything, really to bring the floor concept to uh, the most common concepts that we see now in the cars without this uh, floor actually being uh, very advanced. So. What we actually realized is that we needed to revise some concepts more uh, comprehensively. And that's what I mentioned, like uh, a substantial redesign needed to be undertaken. And that's why not much has actually landed the trackside yet. It took a few months to design and start producing the parts. And therefore, I would say that since Austria, we should start seeing new shapes in the MCL60 and um, we definitely hope that together with the new shapes we start to see more lap time and competitiveness. Is the Red Bull ring a good test track? Is it a good place to introduce new parts? I would say so. It's a permanent track, it's a relatively smooth track so you don't need to do too much compromise from a setup point of view like you would do in Monaco or in Canada for instance is a track that uh, uh, features uh, low speed and high speed corners and also challenges the car in terms of straight line speed. So despite being a short track itself, it's actually quite dense of um, what you find in many other tracks. So it's definitely representative. And um, even though we only have one session because of the sprint nature of the coming event, we thought that uh, because of the track characteristics and because really we needed to, you know, when you have this performance opportunity, you don't want to leave them in the garage. You want to bring them trackside. And therefore, we take uh, what may look like a bit of a risky approach in delivering some um, new parts to a sprint event. Can we talk drivers now? Oscar and Lando seem to be working very well together. Just how do they complement each other? Um... Yeah, I can confirm, even seen from inside, they work uh, very well together. They go along well together. And I think this is true at personal and this is true at professional level. And let me add uh, that with Lando, that's not difficult because 
even though like uh, you know oscar uh, daniel carlos you know they're phenomenal people phenomenal individual um, you know they all went uh, along very well with lando and i can see why lando's uh, characteristics at uh, personal and human level his values are uh, unique so i have definitely great respect for lando independently of how quick he is as a driver and he's definitely quick in terms of um, working together there's an interesting aspect we have noticed is that uh, oscar and lando tend to provide uh, very similar feedback not only like offline in possession debriefings but even you know you do free practice one first run the car comes back you hear the driver talking in the radio and sometimes they just use the same words so for us as a team is very useful this kind of help uh, crystallizing the learning if you want which then becomes uh, more uh, rapidly objectives for development or objectives for setting up the car uh, during a race event so this uh, common feedback is an element which is important for us and um, i would say that lando is useful to oscar because lando tends to be very rapid immediately first run free practice one he already creates some references and oscar being a rookie i think he benefits from these references at the same time there are some kind of corners in which oscar is very quick naturally even when you go to some new tracks or if it's even if it's the first time with a formula one car so this reference is used for for lando so there's several ways in which they integrate and several ways in which they actually uh, like i said have common elements uh, that are very important for uh, the team andre i'm dying to know what kind of corner oscar piastri loves does he like quick corners i would say in some challenging quick corners is um you know is, is very very good so definitely he doesn't have any problem of like uh, fearing or uh, he goes for it <laughs> true <laughs> mclaren driver but yeah. andrea what about you now how are you finding the role of team principal you've been in the job what six months now Tell us about it and how different is it to what you've done before in Formula One? If anything, let's say as a team principal, it's more about the scale of the things you deal with. Even from a people point of view, now you deal with 750 people. While if you are a race engineer, you, you know, your group is 15, 20 people. But certainly the first thing for me in uh, having to face such a large audience was that... Uh, you need to be clear about principles. You need to be clear about vision in simple terms. What we want to achieve, how we want to achieve, it can't be too complicated. And this needs to be communicated uh, very, very clearly so that even it's a large group of people, but they are aligned around uh, simple principles and vision. Now, Andrea, talking of new roles... I'm hoping that you can help us answer one of our listener questions, if that's all right, in a, a segment that we called Ask the Nation. Um, we've been asked this by Martin van Dongen in the Netherlands. Hello, guys. This is Martin from the Netherlands. Uh, first of all, let me tell you that I enjoy F1 Nation very much. I listen to it every week. Uh, I find your insights very insightful. But now I have a question because I see something interesting happening with the technical chief of Red Bull, Rob Marshalls, who will be joining McLaren from the 1st of January 24. And I was wondering if he would be allowed to continue his work with Red Bull until the time or that he would be suspended or go on leave to prevent him taking any more secrets to McLaren. Thank you for answering and goodbye. All right. So, Martin, uh, the thing is that when you deal with somebody who leaves, you may keep him in the business, but uh, you want to make sure that uh, he doesn't earn any more information or awareness as to what is happened. So you either move him or her into a completely separate area of the business, dealing with some other tasks, or you simply um, put them in what is called the gardening leave. I think Rob at the moment is definitely dealing with his garden 
which will be in beautiful conditions after six months or his hobbies. And then he will be fully re-energized and ready to join uh, McLaren. And we look forward very much to this uh, uh, date when he can start and to the future working together with Rob, uh, with David, uh, the very strong recruitments that we have at McLaren coming for uh, the future. Andrea, thank you. Great to get your thoughts. And also thank you as well for answering Martin's question for Ask the Nation. But we've got some other questions this week. So let's now move into our Ask the Nation section with Damon. And remember, you can record a voice note and email it to f1nation at f1.com and we'll do our best to answer it on a future episode. So Damon, our first question is from George Adamopoulos. He asks, how much of Red Bull's success is down to Adrian Newey? Is it down to him personally or is it down to the atmosphere he's fostered at the team and how he's inspired or nurtured Red Bull's aerodynamics team? Damon, what do you think? I think the latter. I think what you just said, you know, I think he was he was one of the founding members of the team. It, it was bought as Jaguar and then it became uh, Red Bull and he was in the in at the beginning and helped build up with Christian this this team of a philosophy of of working and a, and a direction of travel with the aero department and the design department. So, you know, Adrian has set the tone, you know, much in the way that you might say Enzo Ferrari started his own car company. You know, they're, they're, they're a product of Adrian's approach to things. Whether you can say this car is an Adrian Newey car exclusively i don't think that's fair i don't think adrian would want you to say that i think that he knows that it's a team effort and there's all kind of talented people in there who are working and have insights of their own but he's contributed i think he did the suspension so i think he was involved in maybe it was the the unusual wishbone design on this car which apparently controls the the platform better because it's got more anti-dive and anti-squat on it if he chose to do that himself and actually that is he's responsible for that that's a key component of making this car getting rid of all the porpoising they had so he's there as a resource and whether he goes off sailing and spends you know he'll be always on the end on the end of a a phone if anyone wants to ask him and damon he's at most of the races as well he's at most of the races on the pit wall he is the all-rounder isn't he he's the player manager he is involved in the design of he helps with the aero he helps with the suspension he's brilliant at being a race engineer and helps both of the guys race engineering the two cars he, he literally he's just a really good sounding board for everything technical in that team yeah and, and i i sort of sent him a, um, a jokey message after a calendar and saying i said it's, you know he's won 20 percent of all the races ever raced in formula one or something and uh i said it's okay you can relax now and he said and he said uh yeah that's easier said than done you know you can't just stop doing this if you're a competitor you can't just suddenly stop competing and um you know possibly the, the reason why i go off and do cycle races or golf competitions or whatever i need to compete i and, and adrian's the same he's a competitor and he loves it he's still winning you know, all these years into his career, you know, he's, he can say, look, that's my car. I, I had quite a lot to do with that. And we're winning races in Formula One. What a lot of satisfaction that brings. You know, it's very difficult to walk away from that. Are you still winning, Damon? No, I'm not. You know I'm not winning. That's why you brought it up. That's why you mentioned it. But I will win again. I will win again, Tom. Don't you worry. It's, uh, it's in the nature of the beast. George, thank you very much for your question. And we have one final one now. Hey, it's Anna from Los Angeles. I'm curious. Damon has talked quite a bit over the years about driver ages and you've had lengthy discussions about it. But what I'm wondering is what do you think, I guess, brain development plays into the age of a driver? Obviously, they are a little bit of a different breed, if you will. But um, the prefrontal cortex doesn't really fully develop until age like 20, they say 25, 26 which is the adolescent brain or the part of your brain that is like for risk-taking behavior. And so as that matures, more of that forward thinking, more of that like Fernando Alonso has more of the kind of big picture. He sees everything, not just what's right in front of him uh, and the racing that's at hand. So I'm just curious your thoughts on if that maybe has a part in 
a driver slowing down, realizing maybe even subconsciously the risks of what he's doing versus um, just that pure tunnel vision of drive, win, that's it, go as fast as you can, that kind of thing. Just a thought. Love to hear your thoughts on it. Anna, that is a great question. I would say it's probably demonstrably true that racing drivers reach their peak from so late 20s to early 30s, you know, in terms of their brilliance and effectiveness as they mature and are able to make calculations rather than daft, hot-blooded moves. Yet it is a very interesting area. Of course, we are now in an era when you've got two incredibly experienced drivers in Fernando and Lewis who are demonstrating, I would say, the the case for use of their experience but still having the ability to be fast. But the, the racing is less risky now than it used to be, perhaps. So, you know, when Fangio entered and he was 37 or 38, whatever it was when he started Formula One, that was a lethal era of racing. And he carried on till he was late 40s. Now, that meant he had to contend with the knowledge that he could expire every time he stepped in a racing car, but he managed to keep that under control, which I think is just phenomenal. When you compare that to, say, someone like Sterling Moss, who was very young, who potentially didn't care about the risks as much, you, you might say it's a lot easier for a young person to be quick and take risks. Damon, you say that Formula One today is a lot safer, and thank goodness it is. But for a driver, let, let's even talk about Canada, Saturday, heavy rain, the walls are close there. How does it affect the drivers as they head out at the start of qualifying, knowing that they've got to be on the limit to get the best possible grid position, yet it is rainy, it is slippery, the risks are higher. Do they approach it differently? Do you think any of them think for a second about the consequences? Maybe not even a second. You know, I don't think it's it's not productive to think about the consequences because the objective is to get it right and not only to get it right, but to be quickest. So the, the goal is always to survive. The goal is always, you, you literally are employing every instinct that we have to preserve yourself. And that's the most powerful instinct probably of all. And that's, so it use, if, you, if you're in a very dangerous situation, you have to engage every fiber of your being to focus and to concentrate and to, and to learn. That's, I honestly think that's what brought the best out in me was when the situation was more perilous or the, the importance of the race was greater, I performed better. Suzuka 94. Yeah, or, or whatever, going out with a minute, two minutes to go for qualifying, you've got to get pole position or whatever. You know, it is the intensity of the experience which brought out the best in me. And I think that's, that's the objective. So thinking negatively, thinking about, oh, well, because, I mean, the answer to not wanting to incur a penalty is to just not leave the garage. Sit, just stay there. You won't get hurt. <laughs> you, know, you can just, <laughs> but explain that to your, um, to your team boss and, uh, and everyone else. Once you've taken the decision to be a racing driver, that's it. You are, you're, you're on a, a mission to, to Mars and that's it, you know? Um, but of course, if you've got a family, which I did, so this is where Anna's point is correct. Other considerations start to creep in wanting to be around for your wife and your kids how much more important is that than winning another grand prix well anna george martin thank you all very much for your questions uh, they're great i hope we've gone some way to answering them and to everyone listening don't forget if you want your questions answered in future episodes send a voice note to us via email to f1nation at f1.com well damon that's pretty much it we're about to get on a plane to Austria. What are your movements this week? When do you go? Wednesday, I believe, um, which is quite early for me, but um, it's a nice place, Austria. Hopefully it's not raining <laughs> because it can rain. It's, it's uh, in the mountains, but generally speaking, it's a lovely place to be. It's a spectacular setting. So, And of course, it'll be heaving with fans of you know, Max Verstappen and Red Bull because it belongs to Red Bull. So The Orange Army is going to be out in force. Will it be another Red Bull victory? Not long to wait. Let's check in with our fantasy team now. F1 Nation Racing. We've dropped even further down the F1 Nation World Championship to 779th after a poor weekend in Canada. Our lead drivers, Max Verstappen and Fernando Alonso, delivered nearly 100 points between them. And our constructor duo of Mercedes and Aston Martin provided a decent haul as well. 
But we only gained 23 points from Esteban Ocon, Zhou Guanyu and Yuki Tsunoda combined. So we're going to make some changes ahead of Austria. As I said during the pod, I fancy Ferrari's chances of a podium. So we'll bring them in to replace Mercedes as one of our constructors. And sadly, it's time to take Tsunoda out after four pointless races. And in comes Alex Albon following that stellar drive in Canada. And looking at our leaderboard, well done to the damn must hold who are racing away with a 55 point lead at the top. Dodgy DRS has overtaken Thunder Table Racing in second, but only by two points, and there's very little between them and the chasing pack. It's actually quite similar to what we're seeing unfold in the real 2023 World Championship. And remember, qualifying for Austria is actually on Friday because of the sprint race format, so you'll need to make your changes before then. And... F1 Fantasy is totally free and you can join at any time. Our league is the F1 Nation World Championship. Search for that, enter your team and play against us and probably beat us on our current form and other listeners. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. As we mentioned earlier, this week's Beyond the Grid is with Williams team principal James Valls. That'll be available from Wednesday. And the latest episode of Formula Y is all about race engineers, and that comes out on Friday. Just search for Beyond the Grid and Formula Y in your podcast app. F1 Nation will be back next Monday with our review of the Austrian Grand Prix. Thank you very much for listening. Damon, thank you for your help as well. Cheers, Tom. I'll see you in Austria. F1 Nation is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. <laughs>